Hey Crossings Podcast community, this week's teaching is called Farmer God and is part seven in our series on the book of Luke. It was taught by Molly Conaway on October 29th, 2023. Thanks for listening. Morning, how are y'all? Once upon a time, a farmer went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came along and devoured them. So he put his seed pouch down and spent the next hour or so stringing aluminum foil all around his field. He put up a fake owl that he ordered from Tractor Supply, and as an afterthought, he hung a couple of traps for the Japanese beetles. Then he returned to his sowing. But he noticed that some of the seeds were falling on rocky ground, so he put his seed pouch down again and went to get his wheelbarrow and his shovel. A couple of hours later, he dug up the rocks, and he was trying to think of something useful he could do with them when he remembered his sowing and got back to it. But as he did, he ran right into a patch of thistles that was sure to strangle his little seedlings. So he put his seed pouch down again and looked everywhere for the weed poison, but finally decided just to pull the thistles up by hand, which meant he had to go back to his shed and get his gloves. By the time he had cleared the patch of thistles, it was getting near dark, so the sower picked up his seed pouch and tools and decided to call it a day. That night, he fell asleep in his chair, reading a seed catalog, and when he woke the next morning, he walked out to his field and found a big crow sitting on his fake owl. He discovered the rocks that he had missed the day before, and he found new little leaves and shoots on the roots of the thistles that had broken off in his hand. The sower considered all of this, scratched his head, and did a strange thing. He began to laugh. Just a chuckle at first, and then a full-blown belly laugh that turned into a wheeze at the end, and his wind ran out. Still laughing and wheezing, he went to get his seed pouch and began flinging seeds everywhere, into the roots of trees, onto the roof of his house, across the fences, and into his neighbor's fields. He took seeds, he shook seeds at his cows and offered a handful to the dog, and even tossed a fistful into the creek, thinking they might take root downstream somewhere. The more he sowed, the more he seemed to have. None of it made any sense to him. But for once in his life, that didn't seem to matter. And he had to admit that he'd never been happier. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. Let's pray. God, there is so much that we don't understand about the way you operate. About the way we operate. About the way our work and our world operates. And yet here we are. And so here are you. Give us the courage to continue wrestling with and through our questions and our confusion. Thank you for giving us this new day and for a new chance. Amen. So that story called a parable uh, of the farmer or the sower isn't exactly how it's written in the Bible. Um, That's a retelling of the story by an author and preacher named Barbara Brown Taylor. You can find the real story, known as the parable of the sower, in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. We are in the middle. We are in week seven of 23 weeks studying the way Luke tells the story. And today we are covering Luke 7, 1 
through chapter 8, 21. And Caleb is not here today, so I feel like I'm allowed to complain about this behind his back. Here is what Luke 7, 1 through 8, 21 covers. Jesus heals the favorite servant of a Roman military captain. Jesus raises back to life the only son of a widow. John the Baptist from prison sends messengers to ask Jesus who he really is. Jesus sends back a confusing answer. A scandalous woman comes and washes Jesus' feet with her hair and expensive oil while he's eating with some important religious leaders. There's three verses about the way Jesus includes women in his ministry. There's the parable of the sower. There's two verses about parables. There's an explanation of the parable of the sower. There's a parable about a light being hidden under a jar. And then there's an awkward family situation where Jesus' mothers and brothers are waiting to see him. And he says, who are my mothers and brothers? So settle in. You know how much I love long teachings. I want to begin in the very middle with the parable of the sower. Here's how it's actually written in Luke. When a large crowd was gathering as people were coming to him from town after town, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and he sow as he sowed, some fell on a path and was trampled on, the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and as it grew up, it withered for lack of moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. Some fell into good soil, and when it grew, it produced a hundredfold. As he said this, he called out, if you have ears to hear, then hear. As Jesus explains a few verses later, which I've always heard that parables are like jokes, like if you have to explain them, like just don't even bother. But he says that the seeds in this parable are like the word of God. And I want to stop because I don't know about you, but when I hear word of God, I think Bible, okay? This is not talking about Bible. The word of God is what, in Genesis, brought life to all creation, it is what told Abraham, look at the number of stars, so will your descendants be. Okay, the word of God is this creative, life-giving word which brings into existence and makes possible what wasn't there before. Makes possible life and faith where there was no life and faith. And sometimes, as God is scattering the possibility of new and whole and deep and creative life out into the world, people get it and understand and are able to take that and turn it into a life the way God intends it to be. They are able to take it and produce a flourishing, healing life in the world. And sometimes people get it and do the work for a little bit, and then it goes away. And sometimes people get distracted or pulled or are pushed or outside forces creep in, preventing the way this creative, deeply rooted, grounded life that comes from God, this creative, life-giving work from God from sinking in. And if you're like me, you hear this parable and immediately go to, uh, I better get to work, like tending the soil, I need to make sure, like I'm the good guy in the story, and like I'm the one who gets it, and like turn to your partner, what kind of soil are you on today? You know, wink, wink. And I start worrying about and getting anxious about the ground I'm on with God. Are there like rocks? Are there thorns? What are they? How do I clean it up? How do I like improve my life and become a better Christian? I don't know, it just sounds kind of exhausting. And kind of like the do better, be stronger, work harder, clean it up kind of faith that so many of us are tired of. 
Traditionally, this parable has been called the parable of the sower, not the parable of the ground, not the parable of the soil. And nothing about this parable indicates that this farmer, this sower, was like stupid or careless. This isn't like advice about how to plant seeds. Many of Jesus' first listeners would have been gardeners. They would have been farmers. Jesus knew that. And we imagine farms and gardens that use like a precision seeding technique. So where seeds are placed like precisely at space and depth along the rows. But many ancient farmers employed techniques like broadcast sowing, where they would scatter seeds in all directions, even along stony pathways. The farmer knew what the farmer was doing. The point is that some days seeds turned into plants and some days they didn't. And yet, farmer God keeps graciously and excessively scattering the grace and the potential for new life out into the world. Barbara Brown Taylor says we hear this story and think it's a story about us, but what if we're wrong? What if it is not about us at all, but about the sower? What if it is not about our own successes and failures and birds and rocks and thorns, but about the extravagance of a sower who does not seem to be fazed by such concerns, who flings seeds everywhere, wastes it with holy abandon, who feeds the birds, whistles at the rocks, picks his way through the thorns, shouts hallelujah at the good soil, and just keeps on sowing, confident that there is enough seed to go around that there is plenty, and that when the harvest comes, it lasts, it will fill every barn in the neighborhood and in the rafters. If this is really the parable of the sower and not the parable of the different kinds of ground, then it begins to sound quite new. The focus is not on us and our shortfalls, but on the generosity of our maker, the prolific sower who does not obsess about the conditions of the fields who is not stingy with the seed, but who casts it everywhere on good soil and bad, who is not cautious or judgmental or even very practical, but who seems willing to keep reaching into his seed bag for all eternity, covering the whole creation with the fertile seed of his truth. Great, so we're one-eleventh of the way through the things we're supposed to cover today. Uh, A couple reminders of things that have happened in the story up to this point. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in his hometown synagogue. He opens the scroll of Isaiah and says to the people his intentions on behalf of God to fulfill what it means to bring good news to the poor, to release the captives, to restore sight to the blind, to let the oppressed be freed, and that God's attention and focus is especially on There's this preferential treatment for the poor and the sick and those who are in captivity. He says that's how it was with the ancient prophet Elijah. That's how it was with the ancient prophet Elisha. And this message didn't go over particularly well at this particular synagogue. And last week, Crystal taught about Luke chapter 6. It's what's known as Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, or if you know the Sermon on the Mount, it's something like that. Essentially, Jesus says, again, the way the kingdom of God, the the world the way God intends it to be, is particularly zoomed in on healing those who are hurting, 
on solidarity with the poor and the outsiders. It's a posture of love and peace and grace toward those who are hardest to love. And then Jesus leaves both of those stories and starts doing the work. That's what's happening in Luke 7 and 8. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is what this generous, excessive, seed-sowing grace of God looks like in real time. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our people. It is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But only speak the word and let my servant be healed. For I also am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this. And to the slave, does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So something that we miss here uh, is the way this story would have called back to one of the ancient tales of faith for the early hearers. Maybe this is a story Jesus heard from his daddy growing up as they worked in the workshop in the Hebrew Bible, the book of 2 Kings, we read a story about a great prophet named Elisha. And Luke has brought up Elisha before. And Elisha comes in contact with this high-ranking Gentile, a word for a non-Jewish official. And Luke is sure to echo this story in his telling of Jesus. It would have been unmistakable for the first readers. If you're interested in the parallel, we have it here. Luke knew what he was doing when he told this story. In both stories, a prophet encounters a high-ranking Roman non-Jewish officer, someone we're not supposed to particularly have compassion for, someone who probably wouldn't have had much compassion for the local Jewish community. But instead, we find this officer to have actually earned the respect of the local Jewish community. It says this centurion in Luke actually paid for the building of the local synagogue. This officer is looking in at God's people from the outside, opening himself up to the possibility. Opening up an inkling of faith. And the simplicity and the clarity of his faith actually kind of surprised Jesus. Somebody who has been surprising people all along. And Jesus sees into this life of this man and sees into the depth, sees past his rank. This ground, like soil, where the creative, life-giving seeds of God's word like, aren't really supposed to grow here. But they do, and they are. Soon afterward, he went to a town, Jesus went to a town called Nain, 
and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he was moved with compassion for her and said to her, Do not cry. Then he came forward, touched the, is it beer? What is it? Buyer. Buyer? I mean, I should have looked that up. And the bearer stopped, and he said, Young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This word about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding region. So again, this story would have echoed another ancient Hebrew story of a different prophet, Elijah in 1 Kings 17, who brings to life the only son of a non-Jewish, foreign, outsider widow. And now, in the same way, Jesus, through this, the word of God, brings to life and returns a boy to his mother. There are so many ways we could go here at this point. Why does Luke keep calling back to these ancient prophets? Is Jesus trying to like one-up everybody? And what about these miracles? What about these healings? What about raising people from the dead? Is it real? Why doesn't it happen today? Why did Jesus raise and heal this person but not my person? And those are good questions. Those are hard questions. And I hope you ask them and sit with them and talk about them. This is hard for us to believe. It defies the law of physics and, like you know, mortality. But right now, for me, uh, today, I don't really need or want the answers to those questions as much as I want and need Stories of resurrection. There's a Lutheran priest named Nadia Boltzweber who says, I love the stories of resurrection because I'm someone who's desperate for second chances and third chances and really like all the chances. I love stories of resurrection because they're messy and they're weird and stories of resurrection sink a hook of hope into me like nothing else can. And we could use some divine hope right now, could we not? We could use some resurrection. We could use something a little more powerful than our virtues, a little more reliable than our wokeness, a little more hopeful than our attempts to just try harder. I've tried trying harder. It doesn't make me free, it just makes me tired. And then she goes on to pray, Lord of compassion, as you did in Nain, give us back to one another. And help us know when we do not have enough compassion for the road ahead. When we do not have enough compassion for our enemies. When we do not have enough compassion for ourselves that you do. And that's enough. It's enough for today and tomorrow and the day after that. It's enough. And after Jesus does these things, word starts to spread about him. Uh, the scene zooms out and then zooms back in on John the Baptist, the character we haven't seen or heard from in a few chapters. And John is in prison. 
John's disciples reported back to him on the news of all the events taking place. He sent two of them to the master to ask the question, are you the one we've been expecting or are we still waiting? The men showed up before Jesus and said, John the baptizer sent us to ask you, are you the one we've been expecting or are we still waiting? And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. In my head, I picture the sower um, scattering the seeds. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with skin diseases are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them. The wretched of the earth have God's life-giving hospitality extended to them. Scattering the seeds, scattering the seeds. I wish we had time to keep reading, John and everyone else are basically asking, are you the anointed one from God? Are you the one from God that we've been waiting for? Messiah is the word we can think of here. To save us from this crushing grip of Rome? Or are we still waiting on that? And Jesus doesn't answer their question. At least not clearly. Instead, he points to the work of solidarity with the poor, of the healing and restoring, bringing to life, and asks in return, what is it exactly that you've been expecting? Someone more like kingly, or like rich? Someone more royal? Maybe someone smarter or more spiritual or more like priestly? What is it you're expecting? Jesus asks them and certainly asks us. What is it that we're expecting when we consider who Jesus is and how God and faith work in our lives? An author, a preacher, Fred Craddock, says it this way. The issue is not whether or not one believes that Jesus really is doing these things. The issue is Are these the things a Messiah does? It is not one's view of Jesus that may need adjustment, but rather one's view of a Messiah. When the Messiah comes is the introduction to all kinds of wishes and dreams and hopes, but what will God's Messiah do? How will he relate to the leaders and the institutions dedicated to the preservation of faith in God? Will he be politically active? And now, now most pointedly, the question arises. Can someone who gives time and attention to the dead, to the very poor, to the outcast, the acknowledged violators of the law, and the diseased, be God's Messiah? He goes on and says, John has to decide in the same way all of us decide. On the basis of witnesses reporting what they have seen and heard, if if our faith hesitates, it's not because it's waiting on one more witness to bring further proof. That route is a detour in pursuit of another question about whether Jesus could or could not perform miracles. Many gallons of afternoon tea have been poured over that one, and the results are disappointing. When those who say yes and those who say no 
discover that their answers have no bearing on their lives or the lives of others. But if one says that Jesus is the Messiah, then one is saying that the ministry of Jesus, we are seeing what God is doing in the world, what the reign of God really is. And that, of course, is to say what we are doing in the world if we confess that Jesus is God's Messiah. You know, there's one thing we try to do a lot around here, um, and it's ask and sit with and wrestle with the hard questions about life and faith and God, like all of them, and give generous space to one another as we work through and wrestle through those questions together. Like Fred Craddock said, our questions are not a whole lot different than John the Baptist's. And I don't imagine Jesus' answer to have changed much in our time and our world. Like, whether or not it's all true, whether or not it's what we expected, whether or not it happened this way or that way, however we find ourselves answering the question, is Jesus the one, the way, or, or are we still looking? What would it mean? if the proof of our faith was found in the way we lived in the world? What if the proof was in the way following Jesus, the way of this farmer, sower God, inspired and gave depth and meaning to the way we love others and love ourselves differently, more graciously, more radically? The more he sowed, the more he seemed to have. None of it made any sense to him, but for once in his life, that didn't seem to matter. And he had to admit that he'd never been happier. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. So one of the parts of this story that we had to skip today was actually a story of Jesus at a table, eating with some religious leaders uh, when a woman comes in confessing and repenting and asking for forgiveness of the mess she had made of her life, anointing Jesus with his expensive oil, and it was totally embarrassing and totally awkward for everybody else at the dinner party. But it seemed neither embarrassing nor awkward for Jesus. Instead, he told her to get up, to go in peace, shalom, to be released from the shame which had clearly been holding her captive. Remember Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord has sent me to give good news to the poor, to release people from that which has held them captive. And the shame had clearly been holding this woman captive. See, Luke is basically just a bunch of stories of Jesus eating at tables with people and then like healing and restoring them. And it's why we come to a table each week, actually. Uh, you may know this table as Holy Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or Communion. We call it Common Meal. Um, we don't try to pretend every week that something miraculous or dramatic will happen at this table. Sometimes the seeds, this creative life-giving work of God, um, takes root and flourishes into something. And sometimes it doesn't. And either way, the table is set and the invitation is made. So when you're ready, we invite all of you to join us. This is the bread, the body of Christ, broken for you and your healing and your flourishing.
This is the wine, the blood of Christ that is poured out for you, for your healing, for your flourishing. We have gluten-free crackers if you don't want the bread. We have grape juice if you wouldn't like the wine, just let us know. But when you're ready, we invite you to come. <laughs>